Welcome to episode 65 of the Blooms and Barnacles podcast, where we talk about everything related to James Joyce's Ulysses. I'm Kelly. And I'm Dermot. Well, for those of you maybe tuning in for the first time, Dermot is the artist for our episode, and every for every episode he does some original artwork to illustrate one of the topics. And this week is no exception. Dermot, would you like to tell us about the artwork you've done for this episode? This was a fun one because um, it was episodes about deal, deals with um, the Zulu uh, rebellion or uprising. Rourke's Drift. Rourke's Drift, yes. And uh, one of the characters mentioned in the book believed himself to have been involved in Rourke's Drift. So I inserted him into the movie of Rourke's Drift from 1964 starring Michael Caine. Mm-hmm. A very young Michael Caine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he's playing a toff, which is mm-hmm. unusual for him because he's a working, famously working class man mm-hmm. and uh, from background. And uh, yeah, my favorite Michael Caine story is that he was in the movie Jaws Four at the time they were shooting. The Oscars were on, and he couldn't visit the Oscars. And uh, he said, "You know, I've, I've been told that the movie Jaws Four is very, very bad. However, I have seen the mansion that I bought with the money I made on Jaws Four, and it is very, very good." So, uh, yeah, working class right. lads made good. All right. Well, if you'd like to see Dermot's creation with his arm around Michael, a very young, ni- early 1960s Michael Caine, where can our listeners find that? Bloomsandbarnacles.com. That's right. That's our website. You can find our show notes for this episode, our blog, because we are a blog as well as a podcast, and much, much more there. And usually I like to announce a recent blog post. I am just about finished with the first blog post about the Hades episode, which is episode six. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of my favorites because I like things that are about spookiness and death. And that episode is all about death. So get ready for that. All right. We'd like to do a few shout outs before we get started. The first is we'd like to thank anyone who donated in the last fortnight. Thank you so much. Your donations really do help us. I've been able to buy some books recently that I've had my eye on for quite a while, but were always a bit expensive. Thank you so much to all who donated. We always joke that it keeps us in coffee, but it's lately it's been keeping me in uh, expensive books. So that will only improve my knowledge of Joyce and your podcast listening experience. Anyway, this month or this week, we'd like to thank Simon Henschel and Russell Raphael. Thank you so much. And if someone would like to do like Simon and Russell, what can they do? If you go to bloomsandbarnacles.com, we have a donate button on the top right of the page. Mm-hmm. It says donate and it'll take you to PayPal. So check that out. If uh, you'd like to get a little bit of extra Blooms and Barnacles in your inbox every month, you can subscribe to our newsletter. You can also find that link at our website. Go all the way down to the bottom. We will send you a monthly update just uh, with some links to recent shows. We give an early preview to that month's upcoming shows. And we also include a question of the month, which we will now share with non-subscribers. So you can respond to this either. You you can email me at bloomsandbarnacles at gmail.com or I will post this question on our social media, Twitter and Facebook, if you'd like to answer it there. And the question of the month is... What? is the significance of Bloom's potato. That's right. We're actually asking you to interpret literature this time. What's up with Bloom's potato? He carries a potato around with him through, you know, 
hundreds of pages of, of a very dense novel. Mm. What's up with that? So let us know what's up with that. Uh, we will be posting that on our social media this week, or you can just email me at bloomsandbarnacles at gmail.com. And finally, we do love receiving email, and we received a great email this week from a gentleman named Philip, and Dermot is going to read that email. Thank you for your brilliant podcast that you've made available. I'm playing catch up with your programs. After listening to episode 58, I reread the Proteus chapter in Ulysses. I believe the line, a quiver of minnows, fat of a spongy titbit, flash the slits of his button trouser fly, refers to the Egyptian myth of Isis and Osiris. According to the myth, Osiris's dismembered and scattered parts were eventually found by Isis, except for his penile member, which was believed to have been eaten by Nile fish. Your comment would be very much appreciated. Well, thank you, Philip. I had never heard this myth. I must admit, I, I feel like I have a good grasp on Greek mythology, but I know very little about Egyptian mythology, so it's nice to have a listener fill in some of these gaps. But... You asked me for my comment, and my comment is this. I love a good story about fish eating a penis. <laughs> so, no, yeah. Philip, Philip was very polite, and I really do appreciate your comment. So, thanks for reaching out. And if you have a question or comment for us or something you'd like us to read on the show, feel free to tweet me, Facebook me, or, best of all, email me. And if we like it, we'll read it on the show. All right, so let's get to doing what we do best, which is talking about Ulysses. All right, so we are now comfortably ensconced in the fourth episode called Calypso, and the text we're going to read today is from pages 56 through 57 in my edition, which is the 1990 Vintage International Edition, and Dermot is going to do his dramatic rendering of this passage where really nothing happens. Go for it. On quietly creaky boots, he went up the staircase to the hall, paused by the bedroom door. She might like something tasty, thin bread and butter she likes in the morning, still perhaps once in a way. He said softly in the bare hall, I'm going round the corner, be back in a minute. And when he had heard his voice say it, he added, You don't want anything for breakfast? A sleepy soft grunt answered, mm. No, she didn't want anything. He heard then a warm heavy sigh, softer, as she turned over and the loose brass quoits of the bedstead jingled. Must get those settled, really. Pity, all the way from Gibraltar, forgotten any little Spanish she knew. Wonder what her father gave for it, old style. Ah, yes, of course. Bought it at the governor's auction, got a short knock. Hard as nails at a bargain, old Tweedy. Yes, sir, a plevna that was. I rose from the ranks, sir, and I'm proud of it. Still, he had brains enough to make that corner in stamps. Now that was far-seeing. His hand took his hat from the peg over his initialed heavy overcoat and his lost property off his second-hand waterproof. Stamps, sticky-back pictures. Dare say lots of officers are in the swim, too. Of course they do. The sweated legend in the crown of his hat told him mutely, Plasto's high-grade ha. He peeped quickly inside the leather headband. White slip of paper. Quite safe. On the doorstep he felt in his hip pocket for the latch key. Not there. In the trousers I left off. Must get it. Potato I have. Creaky wardrobe. No use disturbing her. She turned over sleepily that time. He pulled the hall door to after him very quietly more till the foot leaf dropped gently over the threshold, a limp lid. Looked shut. All right till I come back anyhow. 
He crossed to the bright side, avoiding the loose cellar flap of number 75. The sun was nearing the steeple of George's church. Be a warm day, I fancy, especially in these black clothes. Feel it more. Black conducts, reflects, refracts, is it, the heat. But I couldn't go in that light suit, make a picnic of it. His eyelids sank quietly often as he walked in happy warmth. Boland's bread van delivering with trays are daily, but she prefers yesterday's loaves turn over his crisp crowns hot. Makes you feel young. Somewhere in the east, early morning, set off at dawn. Travel round in front of the sun, steal a day's march on him. Keep it up forever, never grow a day older, technically. Walk along a strand, strange land, come to a city gate, sentry there, old rank or two, old Tweedy's big moustaches leaning on a long kind of a spear. Wander through on streets, turban faces going by, dark caves of carpet shops, big man, Turco the Terrible, seated cross-legged, smoking a coil pipe. Cries of sellers in the streets, drink water scented with fennel, sherbet, dander along all day. Might meet a robber or two. Well, meet him. Getting on to sundown, the shadows of the mosques among the pillars, priest with a scroll rolled up. A shiver of the trees, signal the evening wind. I pass on. Fading gold sky. A mother watches me from her doorway. She calls her children home in their dark language. High wall, beyond strings twanged. Night sky, moon, violet, colour of Molly's new garters. Strings, listen. A girl playing one of those instruments. What do you call them? Dulcimers. I pass. Probably not a bit like it, really. Kind of stuff you read, in the track of the sun. Sunburst on the title page. He smiled, pleasing himself. What Arthur Griffith said about the headpiece over the Freeman leader, a home rule sun rising up in the northwest from the Langley behind the Bank of Ireland. He prolonged his pleased smile. I key touch that. Home rule sun rising up in the northwest. Thank you, Dermot. Yes, our passages are a bit longer now in Calypso, but they're much less dense than they were mm -hmm. in the previous passages. So, uh, what are your thoughts? Yikes. So, it's clearly starting out with him just like making breakfast or thinking of breakfast for Molly. Mm -hmm. um, we've already fed the cat, I guess, some sort of uh, some milk. Um, so he's heading out the door, he's fishing through his pockets for keys, stamps, and all the rest of this. the stuff. The potato, of course. Mm -hmm. Potato I have. Right. And we, we even get the minutiae of creaky floorboards and wardrobes and doesn't want to wake her up. And then he's out in the sun. I have to remember, it's June, right? Mm -hmm. So it's, that could be a, a mixed month in, uh, in Ireland, but in mm -hmm. this case, it's a sunny day. Mm -hmm. um, and then we see all the, I guess it's all the fleeting perceptions going through him with the bread van going by. Um, see she likes her yeah we got to the uh her, her old father this this whole thing if i didn't know it this old tweedy would have been completely cryptic to me mm -hmm. um i know it only because of our I, blog of the blog yeah uh, i don't know That's how fair. you know it would be very very hard for a first time reader to read that i think and then pull out the meaning of this is molly's father who served in the british army rose to the ranks and may have or may not have fought in South Africa. And then he, he, he goes into this, like it seemed like a whole like, just fantasy sequence of Orientalist stuff, you know, the minarets and turbans mm -hmm. and dulcimers. Yeah, his mind is wandering as he walks Yeah, he's just street. like, basically it's a daydream. He's just mm -hmm. daydreaming. He's imagining Dublin is somewhere in Mesopotamia. 
and then he snaps out of it. Probably not a bit like it, really. It's kind of stuff you read. So he's mm -hmm. he's a very grounded person. He can go off on these kind of flights of complete fancy, and mm -hmm. then but he never really forgets that he's in Dublin. Um, he wouldn't want to forget uh, getting the trouble. Um, and then we get into trouble. Yeah. What does that well, mean? Well, you'll, you'll be away with the fairies, as they say. You know, you'll, you'll start thinking. You'll start believing all kinds of mad crypto-fascist nonsense if you start believing. You know, all these kind of mm -hmm. cultural myths and things. We've seen people do that. Um, so let's see. Sunburst on the title page. I guess he's thinking about like a book or is uh, the the free the Freeman's Journal. Okay, and this gets us back into Arthur Griffith mm -hmm. and uh, yeah, the so the song, yeah. yeah, it's the like he calls it the headpiece. You know, like the the banner on the yeah. front of the newspaper yeah. has a, a sun rising. The mast. Um, yeah, yeah. But he says a, ho a home rule sun rising up in the northwest from the laneway behind the Bank of Ireland, which I believe is where the Freeman's are. Journal's offices are located. Okay. I think um, we won't see that until Eolus, which is episode number seven. But now, and this word Ike, Ike touched that. It's like, is that a typo or Oh, what? no. So I found this very interesting. Ike is, uh, as the kids would say nowadays, a very uh, problematic term for a Jewish person, but it also means like clever or cunning. So he's saying, like, oh, that's a clever touch, home rule sun rising up in the Northwest. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. So he, he, he just thinks that's, that's a clever touch that on the Freeman's Journal. Okay, that's a word that's fallen out of use. Yeah, again, because it's, uh, I think people would consider if you call someone Ike now, that would be anti-Semitic. People wouldn't even know what you were saying. Yeah. Not home, I mean, I've never heard it. Yeah, no, I, I definitely had to look it up, but yeah. Hmm. Yeah, but he's I using... Gar I guarantee Irish people didn't stop using this because of racial or ethnic sensitivity. Uh-huh. They stopped using it because it was antique. Uh, okay, just, let okay. me just get that straight. Right well, I think now. the irony here is he's using this very mildly anti-Semitic term when he himself is a, right. is a Jewish man. Right. Are you saying right. that the the people of Dublin in 1904 weren't woke? <laughs> well, they they woke the British Empire up. <laughs> All right, we'll leave it at that. So. You know, some of these details like Tweety and things like that, you you wouldn't know what you're talk he's talking about the first time you read it. Right. And probably most people don't, unless you are reading with a um, an annotation or a reading guide. But there's a lot of little subtle touches in this. Mm -hmm. um, and when you first read it, I remember the potato did stand out to me. I was like, why does he have a potato? <laughs> but he, um, yeah. he's, he mentions he's dressed in black. So I have a few little random things here before we get into our main discussion of Major Tweedy, Old Tweedy. Um, the Bloom is wearing black here, and he's wearing black for a funeral that he's going to attend at, or, you know, just before noon. His friend Patty Dignam has died. Mm -hmm. So that's why he's dressed in black. That's also why he leaves the, the door open, because he's forgotten his latch key, because he has his usual pants that he wears, mm -hmm. and he did what I'm sure everyone has done at some point is he left those folded over the back of a chair in their bedroom and they have his keys in the pocket because he's wearing his funeral pants, which he doesn't normally wear because, mm -hmm. they're you know, it's a hot day and he's wearing all black. Mm -hmm. um, like Stephen, you know, he's, he's dressed in, in morning clothes. Yeah. Um, and as he goes out the door to get a kidney for breakfast, he's like, oh, crap, I left my key upstairs in my other pants. 
And uh, so he goes out and comes back. And we'll see as he goes throughout the day. He leaves again later. He never gets his key. He has to, like, break into his own house when he comes back at the end of the day. Right. Yeah. But because he's wearing black for the funeral, it causes him to forget his latch key, which is, yeah, key for the rest. It's a very easy detail to miss mm -hmm. because, um, yeah, as you, you, you know, astutely notice, there's a lot of minutia here. And I think that is important to pay attention to because I, I remember reading in some commentary on this that it's very rare to always know where the, the hat of a protagonist is in a, a novel like this. Yeah. And... We do know where we know where his hat is. We know where his key is. We know where his pants are. We know where his potato is. But little by little, you'll start to see details get omitted, and those are often important things that he'd prefer not to think about. Okay. One thing he he did note that he has is a white slip of paper. Do you know the significance of that? Oh, is this the love letter or the pen pal? Yeah, or, he's yeah. he's going to. I I I believe it's you know it's uh. He's, he's going to, yeah, it's something he's going to use to go mm. pick up Martha's letter from the, the post right. office. Yeah. And then his Plasto's high-grade hat because the, the tea has the rubbed tea off. The tea has fallen off. Yeah. yeah. Right. And then he has his little Orientalist fantasy here. I wrote two whole posts on Orientalism in turn of the century Ireland. You can go read those. Um, we will talk about those on the show at some point. This section has so much in it. It was really hard to pick just portions to read mm -hmm. uh but for continuity's sake i just put it all in there oh um here's a very subtle joycean mystery related to some minutia uh the term footleaf what is a footleaf couldn't tell you well that you are not alone in that um don't worry though joyce scholars are on the, the case and uh when i was reading about it it's it's been hypothesized this may actually be a joycean coinage because they're not really sure what it is. Mm -hmm. And there's a quote from the website, The Joyce Project, which is an excellent online annotation you should check out if you haven't. Um, but this is, a, David J. Wilson said this to John Hunt uh, of The Joyce Project. This is Wilson's quote, which I'd like you to read. The footleaf is beyond doubt as solid as any part of the door. It is not added onto the door, it is integral. It may be described as a limp lid, but it's made out of thick oak. It's not a sweep to keep the roaches out, nor is it a draft excluder. This footleaf has one and only one great function. It keeps out the rain. If you can't see this perfectly plenty for yourself, then may the devil break the hasp of your back. <laughs> yeah, is that last line that, because of that, that I bothered putting this in at all? <laughs> yeah, so there's your uh, foot footleaf hypothesis for anyone who's really into uh, minutiae. Take a little moment for some Bloom and Stephen crossover because we've had three chapters of Stephen and now we've kind of reset to eight o'clock, which is Stephen at this hour is on top of the tower bickering with Mulligan. Mm -hmm. uh, Bloom at the same time, as we mentioned, they, they're both dressed in black morning clothes. Stephen mourning the death of his mother, Bloom because he's headed to a funeral later in the morning. Um, and during this sequence, Bloom thinks about Turco the Terrible who is a character from a, a like a Christmas pantomime. Mm -hmm. We'll talk about Turco more at some other time, but uh, Stephen also thinks about Turco the Terrible, which my many searches through Google tell me uh, was of no interest to people outside of Ulysses. I don't, I don't, I think he was popular at the time, but there's just not much about him. Mm -hmm. But yeah, they both think of this the same character. So there's some, uh, we've talked about them in, in terms of, uh, 
a, a hypostasis of their their two parts of the the same person father aspects of father and son mm-hmm. when combined uh you get jesus <laughs> um hypostasis is a religious term but you can see where their their minds do overlap mm-hmm. they, they're not aware of it but their their thoughts and their physicality do overlap and we'll see that uh throughout these first three episodes so i like to point those out finally this phrase in the track of the sun is the title of a, a travelogue by fd thompson and this is a book that bloom owns we know this because in Ithaca, the penultimate episode of Ulysses, we get a, a look, a, a very detailed list of what's on Bloom's bookshelf. He mentions that there's a, you know, a woman playing a, a dulcimer. Mm-hmm. And if you look at the title page, because all these old books now have been scanned and uploaded to Google Books, right? you can go and, and see for yourself. But there's an image on the title page of that, of a young woman uh, playing a, a shamisen, which is a traditional three-stringed Japanese instruments. So I'll put that in the show notes, that image that I've screen captured, as well as uh, a link if you want to read In the Track of the Sun, which I think we'll probably mention again at some point. Um, Orientalism in Joyce has become one of my, to me, one of my my favorite topics. So Mm -hmm. I have a lot to say about that, but I just wanted to to clock that phrase because it's, it's not formatted like a title so you're wondering why he's thinking about in the track of the sun it seems like a a throwaway line but he is referencing that and that's where he comes up with the dulcimer Mm -hmm. which is a very different instrument to the shamisen they both have strings outside of that they're completely different but i will leave that for another day so go check that picture out because it's it's kind of when i when i made that connection uh when i was working on that topic over the summer it was really cool for me so every so often something in this book just kind of like drops in the place (laughs) and it's it's a good feeling so i'd like to share that with you listeners there's a lot in this chapter like we mentioned but the main focus today is going to be old tweety and so let's talk about him we're just going to focus on him for the rest of the episode so who is old tweety he is Molly's father, uh, and he's kind of the, the star of the show today. His full name is Brian Cooper Tweedy. And I think it was in our, you know, Calypso in the Odyssey episode, we talked about some Homeric significances of Cooper and Tweedy. So you can go check that episode out. It's a couple back in your feed if you want to know about that. So, yeah, Tweedy is by no means a major character. When I first thought about writing about him on the blog, I was like, eh. Some topics I kind of feel like, I don't know if this is going to develop in anything. Like we talked, I want to do one about Bloom's cat, but I just, Mm -hmm. there wasn't enough to write a thousand (laughs) words about. So I kind of abandoned it. I thought Tweety would go in the same bucket as Bloom's cat, but he is super interesting. And he's not mentioned all that much in Ulysses, but if you focus in just on him, you just, you uncover a mystery. And uh, I really enjoy mysteries and I really enjoy stories about scammers. And uh, this is all going to play into... Old we should make a 10-part Netflix documentary series about it. That's unnecessary. I'm going to make an hour-long podcast. <laughs> and pat it, baby. We just pat it. Yeah. Anyway, there's a few thing, few you know, key things that are connected to him here in this passage where he gets you know a lot of screen time. The first is the bloom, the Bloom's jingly jangly bed. You know, Bloom keeps hearing, or Leopold, I should say, because they're both Blooms. Leopold keeps hearing Molly turn over in it, and you know how all the the brass is jangling. Mm -hmm. And uh, he says, wonder what her father gave for it, old style. Ah, yes, of course. Bought it at the governor's auction. So 
He bought this bed at a governor's auction in Gibraltar where they lived when Molly was young. Got a short knock. Uh, hard as nails at a bargain. Old Tweety. Yes, sir. At Plevna, that was. So now he's kind of moving into other things. Talking about Plevna, which was a, a, a battle in the Russo-Turkish War. Um, not, I feel like not a well-remembered mm. war in the, the Anglophone world. I rose from the ranks, sir. So, okay, so he was a soldier. He, he you know, he, he started out as rank-and-file soldier, and then he, he um, rose to the rank of major, we eventually find out. Uh, and I'm proud of it. Still, he had brains enough to make that corner in stamps. That means he made some money in, in postage stamps. Uh, now, that was far-seeing. He also shows up in Bloom's Orientalist Fantasy, we see here, uh, walk along a strange, uh, a strand, oh, that's also like Stephen, uh, mm -hmm. strange yeah. land, come to a city gate, sentry there, old ranker too, so he's, think, he's kind of pulled back into this Tweety, old Tweety's big mustaches, so we know about his facial grooming, and then he, um, yeah, he, he kind of links him with Turco the Terrible, you know, mm -hmm. I think he's... He kind of looks like this this big tough guy with big mustaches. So what does Bloom think of him? Um, he appears in Bloom's thoughts and also Molly's, but he really never appears as a character in Ulysses. I'm pretty sure he's he's not alive anymore. Hmm. It's uh, I think fair to infer from these descriptions that Bloom had a good relationship with his father-in-law. Mm -hmm. He he thinks he's pretty clever. You know he's clever with money. Um, he's got these big memorable mustaches. He, he seems like he probably cut a pretty imposing figure. He, uh, you know, rose from the ranks of the army, which I think impresses Bloom. He's kind of this, this boldly masculine man, right. um, which Bloom really isn't, but he, he thinks he's cool, mm -hmm. you know. Uh, in my imagination, when I think of what does, what does, uh, Major Tweedy look like, I always think he looks like Lord Kitchener. Mm -hmm. How would you describe Lord Kitchener? Oh, the, he, somebody said he was a better poster than a man. <laughs> okay. uh, and I, didn't he die in the Lusitania? I think he... I know nothing about him apart from that's the name of that poster that he's on. Yeah, your country wants you. And he's pointing at the gullible young men that go off and die in World yeah, War I. He's like the British Uncle Sam for hmm. Americans listening. I think that was inspired by Kitchener's poster. Yeah, I, I assume that Kitchener came first. But yeah, he points at you and tells young British men to... Join the army, God save the king. Mm -hmm. uh, we'll put a picture of him up on the website. Bloom remembers him as a, a bargainer. The first time when he's mentioned in the novel here, we learn that he's, quote, hard as nails at a bargain, and that he won the Bloom's jangly old bed at a, a governor's auction in Gibraltar where he got a short knock. Do you know what it means to get a short knock? Um, it's a, an auction trick or a, like, yeah, getting rid of stuff at a... A clip. Yeah, it? so when you, you go through the auction, the auctioneer says, like, going once, going twice. Mm -hmm. And basically, uh, the it means that the auction ended quickly by the auctioneer. He goes, uh, going once, going twice. Oh, and he, he pretends like maybe he doesn't see anyone else. And he goes, sold to the man with the impressive, impressive mustaches. Yeah, so kind of he, he had a, a deal with the auctioneer right. to, like, you know, end that, end that bidding very quickly so he could get the bed mm -hmm. cheaply. Mm -hmm. So, he, yeah, he's a... A great, uh, a man of great bargainer, or maybe just kind of a scammer. <laughs> it kind of alludes to some chicanery here, uh, especially because in the next paragraph, Bloom also thinks lots of officers are in the swim. So in the swim kind of means like, you know, they're in the know, they're in on some stuff, they're greasing some palms. Mm -hmm. 
you know, yeah. envelopes slid, you know, slid across tables and darkened rooms and that that kind of stuff. Yeah. You know, they they've got they've got some tricks up their sleeve. I think Bloom finds this kind of cool. Like it's dishonest, but it's it's kind of edgy and daring. You know, like oh, he's so clever. He figured out how to game the system. He's in the swim. Hmm. I mean, you know, maybe it's a he's just really good at bargaining, or maybe he has friends in high places. Um, and honestly, like, who doesn't love a, a good scam story? Mm-hmm. I, I think that, you know, those are always fun to hear. Someone who beat the system. We also learn here that he's kind of a, a keen philatelist or a, a stamp expert. Bloom admires the major's brains to, quote, make that corner in stamps. So this means that the, the major at some point bought up a run of postage stamps that ended up being valuable. You think he was in the, the swim with the post office too? No, I hope not. You hope not? Well, that would be a major. Then, then he's like, he, it goes from fraud? being charming to being like serious fraud. Yeah. Yeah. So Bloom doesn't exactly chastise him uh, in, a, you know, in his thoughts. In any case, the major's keen eye for what Bloom calls sticky back pictures, which I like, uh, has clearly left an impression on him. And he even, you know, in Ithaca, at, towards the end of the novel, uh, Bloom imagines finding rare postage stamps as a, quote, rapid but insecure means to opulence. So, yeah, the, the, the last thing we get from Bloom's description here is he's an old ranker. So just so we're clear, what this means is that Tweedy held an officer's rank. He was a major, we learn. He earned his rank. He wasn't some spoiled kid born with a, a silver spoon in his mouth like those boys at DZ school. Mm-hmm. And uh, nope, Miss, uh, Major Tweedy, he rose from the rank of an or- ordinary enlisted man and then distinguished himself at the siege of Plevna, which again uh, took place during the Russo-Turkish War. So a bit like uh, Sean Bean's character, Richard Sharp in the Sharp's Rifles novels and TV movies. Okay, I haven't seen those. So Excellent. So he started out as an enlisted man and ended up an officer? Uh, Yeah, he is the son of a prostitute. Um, He's the scum of the earth. Mm -hmm. And he he saved the life of the Duke of Wellington in the um, Spanish War, in the Peninsular War. And he just gets promoted above all Mm -hmm. these incompetent upper-class twits. People like Boris Johnson are constantly standing in his way. Mm -hmm. And he keeps, like, outwitting them because he's just a better better soldier and a better person. Yeah. Mm -hmm. No, it's great fun if you haven't seen them. Yeah. And I, I think this really impresses Bloom, though, because he, he mentioned it twice in uh, these, you know, this episode. He thinks of uh, Tweety again in uh, Lotus Eaters, though we'll leave that section till we get to it. But yeah, he, he thinks of it twice, recalling the major saying, I rose from the ranks, sir, and I'm proud of it, and then refers to him as an old ranker in that Turk of the Terrible mm-hmm. daydream. Um, I think Bloom is really inspired by him as a self-made man. Brains plus brawn equals full package mm-hmm. yeah so he thinks he's cool right yeah yeah, yeah. he does yeah. yeah now here's 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 where it gets interesting what does molly think of him oh, dad you keep embarrassing me so we have to to get molly's point of view we have to go to the end of the book which is uh the episode penelope the 18th and final episode so mm-hmm. we're going out of sequence a little bit but it's worth it trust me so Molly's thoughts clear up, uh, for the readers anyway, some of Leopold's misconceptions about old Tweedy. Uh, so let's start with the, the Bloom's bed. So 
Leopold is correct in thinking that it came from Gibraltar, but a governor probably never slept in it. Molly says, "The lumpy old jingly bed always reminds me of old Cohen. I suppose he scratched himself in it awful enough, and he, Bloom, thinks father bought it from Lord Napier, the governor of Gibraltar." Yeah, we had some parentheticals in there, so that's that's what <laughs> that's what Molly says. So she uh, refers to the bed one further time in Penelope as Old Cohen's bed. It's really not clear who Old Cohen was. He's just some old guy. Uh, who was apparently itchy, maybe needed some moisturizer, I don't know. Um, but he almost certainly was not a governor. Mm -hmm. It seems like the old major may have... I think he probably knew Leopold thought he was really cool, and so he'd kind of tell him stories. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe he was pulling his, old, you know, pulling his leg, and that, you know, Molly kind of knew, but she never really corrected the record. And yeah. so... Leopold has gone through his life to seem like, yeah, this is this is the governor's bed we have in our dinky little house on the north side of Dublin, mm -hmm. you know. Yeah, it's, it's not really clear why Molly would never tell him. I think apart from maybe like holding on to the secrets of their marital bed parallels Molly symbolically with the Penelope from the Odyssey. But yeah, my personal theory is that she knew Leopold admired her father. She didn't have the heart to correct him to correct her husband uh, by telling him that it was old Cohen who'd scratched himself in the bed and that Lord Napier never scratched himself in the bed, mm. you know. Bit of a passion killer. Isn't it? Yeah. She, she didn't have the heart to do it. So let's talk about the Major's uh, corner at Stamps, his, uh, you know, stamp treasure. Molly doesn't say much about it. She mentions the Stamps once in Penelope, so, I mean, that's already kind of a sign if this was this amazing, you know, um, found opulence or whatever. It, it might have been a bigger part of her life. So it's heavily paraphrased, or not paraphrased, like redacted statement here. She says, my accent, all that my father left me in spite of his stamps. So he, it seems to confirm that he made some money trading valuable stamps, but that by the time he, he died, the only thing she inherited from him was an accent that marked her as lower class mm. and uh, none of that sweet, sweet stamp money. So the final thing here is, and the most interesting part, is the Major's military accomplishments. Just before she's remembering about her father's passing and the lack of uh, stamp money, she thinks about social like sort of social climbing women that she knew in Gibraltar and I, I I love this quote and I'd like you to read it she describes them as sparrow farts skidding around talking about politics they know as much about as my backside Molly's great you're, you're gonna enjoy that chapter whenever we read it 50 years from now uh so yeah Molly it, this is from a longer section in which Molly identifies herself as quote soldier's daughter am I so this is this is very interesting um, because uh, she's imagining how shocked these women would be seeing her on an officer's arm um, in the section as well. So Molly is very conscious of her lowly class status in, in the section where she's talking about, you know, stepping out with an officer, mm -hmm. even though she's a soldier's daughter. She clearly describes herself as soldier's daughter. She's not a major's daughter or even an officer's daughter. If she were an officer's daughter, it would be natural for her to step out with men from the officer class. You know, if her father 
was an officer, wouldn't he have more to leave her than some old postage stamps or money made off stamps? Yeah, he'd have been doing well right. on pensions and, yeah. Yeah. So here's where it gets interesting. Plevna. So Bloom says that he won his majority at Plevna. So let's talk about this battle that would have led to her father's proudest achievement is only mentioned once in Penelope. Um, she says, Captain Groves and father talking about Rourke's Drift and Plevna and Sir Garnet Wolseley and Gordon at Khartoum. So there's a lot of names in here. I'm not, I really don't know who Captain Groves is, but he's someone that their father knew. Uh, Wolseley and Gordon, though, are connected to the Siege of Khartoum, which uh, is in the Sudan. That's where modest forces held a 10-month siege of the city of Khartoum. Sir Garnet Wolseley here was sent in to relieve the British garrison that was under siege. Uh, that garrison was headed by Gordon. Uh, however, Wolseley and his men were too late, and Gordon and most of the men in Khartoum were killed. Yeah, Gordon, uh, Khartoum's famous for the painting, where mm -hmm. he's standing at the top of the yes. stairs, and there's uh, one of the... Sudanese, I think, is going to like throw a spear at him, and Charlton Heston played him in the Hollywood movie in the fifties. Also, Gordon, I think, was one of the four people in the biography *Eminent Victorians* by Lytton Strachey, and that was written in the early twentieth century. And that was the kind of I think people do that as like the first of the modern biographies, mm -hmm. where it was not just making like a hagiography of mm -hmm. this great hero. It actually took a more critical view of Gordon. Yeah, and I, if I remember correctly, there's suggestions that Wolseley did, did, wasn't exactly in a rush to get to the action. Mm -hmm. Like he, okay. he was like, oh, you know, he'll be fine. And then by the time they got there, oh dear. Yeah, the the siege of Khartoum, I think, was a very dark moment in British military history. Mm -hmm. Like, mm -hmm. yeah, I think like the, I was almost the whole garrison were were killed yeah. by the the rebels. Yeah. yeah, yeah, make of that what you will. Uh, Separate topic. Uh, discussed by Molly's father and Captain Groves, though. Rourke's Drift, which uh, we'll talk about a bit more in a moment, uh, refers to a small British-held post in South Africa that was, again, besieged by a contingent of, of Zulu warriors. There were mostly hospital patients there. I think the, the hospital, yeah, the hospital patients outnumbered the soldiers at the post. However, they were able to successfully defend their position and all of the officers present at Rourke's Drift were promoted to the rank of major. Mm -hmm. um, Victoria's crosses were handed out like confetti after that, mm -hmm. too. Yeah. And it should be stressed, it was a very small action, a tiny group of people. Yeah. Like, the main battle was somewhere else. Rourke's Drift was just this, like, basically a footnote to the whole mm -hmm. war. So the, the sequel, Zulu Dawn, actually, I haven't seen that in forever, but... That dealt with the main action in mm. which the Zulus win in that, in that one. It's like there are no survivors. Mm. They just, I, I forget the battle name, but they obliterated the British. Um, and so to the, 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 this, which makes that movie even more remarkable, this tiny group of people were able to hold off and survive. Mm. Yeah. I, I, I don't have any positive feelings about British colonialism whatsoever, but the, the movie is, is very good. It's, it really shows kind of the, you know, how claustrophobic it would have been and just... Mm -hmm to be constantly just fighting wave after wave of, of, of guys that just keep yeah. coming. Yeah. And there's there's so few guys there. Yeah, uh, the 1964 Zulu, There, I think there's also a 2013 movie called Zulu, which is not about British military history, but 
um, it's it's definitely worth checking out. Should be noted too that movie is doesn't exactly glorify the it glorifies the heroism of the people, but not mm -hmm. the uh, British Empire per se. Yeah, and it ends with like a very like downbeat kind of. Mm -hmm. I think like Michael Caine says, "I feel ashamed." You know, <laughs> like it's not like yeah, oh, the flag. You know, it's definitely about the the naivete also of the um, you know the the higher ranking wealthy guys who are there. Right. All right, so they also mention in here, she just says Plevna, one-off, nothing about it. Bloom clocks Plevna as where Tweedy became a major. Let's talk a little bit about the siege of Plevna. So like I said, this took place during the Russo-Turkish War, and it's, it's kind of a similar idea to Rourke's Drift, where um, the Ottoman Turks were able to hold back the Russian army for five months. I think Rourke's Drift only went on for a couple of days, but mm. they were they were outnumbered and they were able to hold back the Russian army for five months uh, before they capitulated to the, yeah. the, the Russians. So I think it holds kind of a, a similar place and, you know, the, imag the imaginations of, of the, those countries. Right. So the plot thickens. In Cersei, the 15th episode, and the hallucinatory one, for your reference, Dermot. So, Major Tweedy makes an appearance. This is in the scene where Bloom is on trial. It's sort of the way Cersei goes is that everybody loves Bloom, and they're like handing him the keys to the city, and then they turn on him, and he ends up being on trial and having to defend himself. And Bloom, when he's on the defense, says of his wife and father-in-law, My wife, I am a daughter of a most distinguished commander, a gallant, upstanding gentleman. Who do you call him? Major General Brian Tweedy, one of Britain's fighting men who helped to win our battles. God is majority for the heroic defense of Rourke's Drift. So, I mean, now I guarantee this is a sort of a hallucination, but the details change here. Bloom says Plevna and Calypso. Here he says Rourke's Drift. Molly kind of mentions both. And she doesn't say anything about him being there, mm -hmm. which, again, you know, if this were a big a big deal, you know, she would maybe, I think, remember that as she's yeah. reminiscing about her father. But, you know, you never know where people's minds go. Also, old Tweedy now has morphed into a major general. Maybe it's because Bloom is on trial for his life here, so he... You know, the extremity of the situation causes him to exaggerate. But Major Tweedy shows up again towards the end of Cersei, where Stephen is very, very drunk and in the red light district and uh, gets into an altercation with two English privates, Carr and Compton. <laughs> Major Tweedy shows up to kind of egg the fight on. And he uh, is described as Major Tweedy, mustachioed like Turco the Terrible enters the fray and his battle cry is Rourke's Drift up guards and at them. Up and at them. <laughs> so again, Rourke's Drift is front and center more than Plevna. Maybe it's possible Bloom just misremembered the name, you know, of the battle back in Calypso. Like, obviously the Major told a lot of tales. Bloom doesn't have a great memory for details as we go through this. You'll see... Um, you know, there's a lot of stuff he misremembers. I think Richard Elman coined the term of bloomism, which is like a, a nearly remembered fact that right. is sort of uh, in the misremembering is, is profound in a way. Yeah. Um, but I wonder if Bloom is just kind of conflated Rourke's Drift and Plevna, you know, of these two tales of heroism from the major's storied career. That is unclear. That, mm. that is not something that's answered. 
But um, again, in Ithaca, we see Bloom's bookshelf, and he has a copy of Hosier's History of the Russo-Turkish War, which is like a multi-volume work of, of great detail on the Russo-Turkish War. Now, inside the cover of Hosier's History of the Russo-Turkish War, there, it, it, there is a, quote, gummed label, Garrison Library, Governor's Parade, Gibraltar, on verso of cover, end quote. So I don't know if he uh, borrowed it from the major or it was gifted to him by the major, but it seems to have been permanently borrowed, quote-unquote, from the Garrison Library in, in Gibraltar. Yeah, I, I don't know. Some of these libraries give away books. We don't know. It's another another mystery. It's like the, the foot leaf that will never be answered. But Bloom goes on to connect Tweedy and Plevna in his memory as he's thinking through what he calls mnemotechnic, or uh, like a, a mnemonic device. Mm -hmm. um, so, What, among other data, did the second volume of the work in question contain? The name of a decisive battle, forgotten, frequently remembered by a decisive officer, Major Brian Cooper Tweedy, remembered. Why, firstly and secondly, did he not consult the work in question? Firstly, in order to exercise mnemotechnic. Secondly, because after an interval of amnesia when seated at the central table, about to consult the work in question, he remembered by mnemotechnic the name of the military engagement Plevna. Yeah, so you haven't read Ithaca yet, but it's written as this question and answer catechism with really like sometimes needlessly complex uh, verbiage. Mm -hmm. Verbiage? Yeah. I, yeah, basically, he sits at the table, can't remember the name of the battle, and then he has some little, he goes into his memory palace and mm -hmm. is like, ah, yes, Plevna. Mm. Maybe, though, if Bloom had consulted the Hosier volume rather than relying on his quirky memory, he'd have learned the key fact that the British Army never fought at Plevna. Mm -hmm. It was the Turks and the Russians. Right. It would be incredibly unlikely, I'm not going to say impossible, but so overwhelmingly improbable that Major Tweedy would have been present at the battle, much less earned an officer's rank in the British Army, who again were not present at Plevna, uh, for his service there, as to beggar belief that that is a true story. Hmm. Now again, Bloom owns this multi-volume work on the Russo-Turkish War. Hmm. I don't know if he read. I don't know if he read it or if he just engaged in mnemotechnic or however you say that word, right. like. Um, yeah, so it's, it's unclear to me, like, what the significance of Plevna is, because Molly remembers him mentioning it too, but he has to have been bullshitting. <laughs> like, yeah. I don't know how this guy could have been there. Right. Yeah, not possible. It, it seems impossible, or so unlikely to be possible as to be impossible. Yeah, it, it, it doesn't seem like he would have been there. Rourke's Drift, on the other hand is a little more interesting. So, you know, he also claims to have been at Rourke's Drift mm -hmm. as his uh, hallucination version of him has, a, you know, really loves Rourke's Drift. So the officers, so the, the Michael Caine class at Rourke's Drift, the officers were promoted to major, but not the enlisted men, mm -hmm. not the, the rank and file soldiers. And also Tweedy was said to have rose from the ranks, remember? Right. He wouldn't have been an officer, but rather a soldier, making Molly a soldier's daughter. Right. Um, and thus, he wouldn't have been promoted to major. So, 
Tweedy makes a lot of claims about meritocracy, but rank in the British Army of that period was very class biased. Right. Um, and officer positions were reserved for members of prominent families. And you could buy your officership. You didn't have to have any ability at all. You'd yeah. buy it with money. So maybe he, he got like some upside down airplane stamps and, and mm -hmm. bought it. You know, I haven't really considered that, but I don't think so. So Tweedy, though, could rise through the ranks for stellar service. So, but he couldn't rise out of them mm -hmm. just for service. Right. So that's very problematic. But I don't think Bloom knows that. The British military, like people have this idea of progress, like it was, you know, more tied down in the past. It's not necessarily true. Mm -hmm. Apparently, Captain Cook, the famous discoverer of Australia, well, white discoverer of Australia, was from a very humble background. And I read somewhere that if he had come into his in, in career, like one generation later, he couldn't have become a captain mm. because the basically the upper classes had just tied everything down. Mm -hmm. And yeah, so you know, I, I don't know to what extent, I suspect it might've been fairly similar in the British army, maybe in an er earlier period, mm -hmm. there was a bit more you know, fluidity for promotion, especially mm -hmm. with the chaos of the, the Napoleonic Wars. They just, we'll take whoever we can get now, chaps, you know? Mm -hmm too many vacancies in the ranks, maybe that loosened things up for a bit and then yeah. they tied it back down. Because in the long peace sort of, sort of the 19th century, there were no major wars. Mm -hmm. It's all stuff they could kind of keep a lid on. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, so all of this though, very unlikely, very, very unlikely that I think that he could have. Yeah, it, do, it, doesn't, it doesn't really add up, yeah. right? It's hard yeah. to square that circle. All right, so let's talk timeline. Um, when you start to construct a rough timeline, more and more about the Major's biography really doesn't add up. Uh, so Molly was born in September of 1870 in Gibraltar. Uh, her mother was from Gibraltar, so we know Tweedy would have had to be present in Gibraltar in probably late 1869 through 70 at least. Um, one of Molly's earliest recollections in Penelope of her childhood was hearing the, quote, damn guns bursting and booming all over when General Ulysses Grant, whoever he was or did supposed to be some great fellow, landed off the ship uh, in Gibraltar. So she's like this idiot, Ulysses Grant. I've been to his house in uh, Galena, Illinois. Mm -hmm. Very nice house. He, uh, you know, showed up and they made a bunch of noise for him. So Grant did visit Gibraltar. Uh, he visited in 1878, so Molly would have been eight by that time. So we know she was living in Gibraltar while her father was off on all of these exploits, right? Mm -hmm. uh, Plevna was in 1878, though I think probably without Tweedy. And uh, Rourke's Drift was in 1879. So that in, in January, excuse me, January of 1879. So this would have been just on the heels of Grant's visit, mm -hmm. right? So she was born in September. She was eight years old when Grant arrived. I didn't write down the, the month of it here. I should have, but... Um, you just think about travel times and that, and yep. there's, there's, so he, he, I don't think he could have been in, in Plevna and Rourke's Drift both. Mm. He had to have been one or the other, and it seems like there's one he was more likely to have been at than the other. Right. So, uh, scholar Ruth von Full wrote an article about all this, which is well worth your time to read and linked in our show notes. Um, she's, her work, a, a lot of this, this timeline is, is constructed from. I'm not that enterprising. I'm just going to read the article. I mm -hmm. didn't construct it myself, uh, but that's okay. Um, so 
Von Fohl points out that Molly's memories become clearer around the time she turned 10, which would have been 1880, and Von Fohl believes that this would seem to be connected to better living conditions for the Tweedies at that time. So Molly probably had a very lonely childhood because her father was away fighting for the empire and she didn't know her mother. I mean, in fact, she describes her mother as whoever she was, mm -hmm. Penelope. Uh, so she must have been in the care of some third party, a nanny or some other person who was looking after her. And uh, it just, it, it just, she doesn't really have many memories. But then around the time she turned 10, she remembers kind of moving to a nicer house, having nicer things, having her own room. So Von Fohl believes that Molly's clearer memories are connected to her father earning more money and also living full time in Gibraltar with her. So this timeline would seem to work if he was promoted after Rourke's drift in 1879, the previous year. Mm -hmm. Okay. So in Penelope also, Molly recalls reading and rereading Lieutenant Mulvey's letter. <coughs> Lieutenant. Uh, Lieutenant Mulvey's letter. <laughs> I'm not saying Lieutenant. I'm you an have, American. This is, no, this is a British. If he's an American, I'll call him Lieutenant. If okay. he's I'll call him Lieutenant. He's, okay. Yeah. Well, we'll we'll both say it and then both pronunciations will be in there and everyone will be happy and not email us or tweet at us. <laughs> so she recalls reading. So Mulvey was her first love. Mm -hmm. She remembers kissing him quite um, in, in great detail in uh, Penelope. Mm -hmm. We won't get to the, the kissy, kissy, steamy parts today. But that was her first love was uh, this Mulvey. And uh, she recalls reading and rereading his letter, quote, while father was up at the drill instructing, quote, and this was around the time she was 15. So mid 1880s, uh, Gifford and Seidman in their annotation note that drill instruction would have been the duty of a sergeant major, which is beneath the rank of major. Mm -hmm. We know that Tweedy was fine kind of fudging other details, both large and small of his life. So maybe he was indeed a sergeant major, but shortened it to just major when he left Gibraltar mm. and he went around Dublin known as Major Tweedy and just nobody ever bothered to question it. Yep. Richard Elman, Joyce's famous biographer, steps in here and he wrote that Major Tweedy was inspired by a family friend of the Joyce's called Major Powell, uh, whose title of major was also disputable at best. Um, it's it's There's not a whole lot known about Major Powell uh, it's not clear if he was quite as creative with the truth as Tweedy. It's my feeling that Joyce kind of wanted to spoof this uh, idiosyncratic man in his novel. Like they had a weird family friend and he wanted to put this detail in. Uh, he put in just enough detail that the sharp-eyed reader would would pick up what Bloom did not, and that's that the old major was full of BS. Mm -hmm. And just a fun fact of the, the show, uh, Major Powell retired in Clondalkin, which has a townland called Gibraltar. I think this has nothing to do with the novel other than just being a cool coincidence. Mm. Back to our timeline here, courtesy of Ruth Von Full. Um, so she posits a very compelling theory about what Major Tweedy was actually doing in Gibraltar all those years. We're, we'll talk about when we get to Lotus Eaters, his involvement with the Royal Dublin Fusiliers, which were not in... Bloom believes him to have been part of, but they were not in Gibraltar during the years that Molly remembers of being here. Mm -hmm. So 
Von Fuhl believes that rather than a major, he may have been a drum major mm -hmm. or band leader for the military brass band. Right. Right? So she believes that Tweedy probably never set foot in Plevna, uh, but he very well could have been at Rourke's Drift, but not as a soldier. Mm -hmm. That he may have been one of the patients in the hospital that were, um, you know, you know, that outnumbered the, the soldiers at Rourke's Drift. Right. Right. Um, the officers present were all promoted to major, but as Tweedy was just another rank-and-file soldier, he, he couldn't be promoted to major. But they rewarded him with the plum position of drum major in Gibraltar, which afforded him better pay and a more stable home base in Gibraltar with his daughter. Right. Uh, this is hypothesis. I, I mean, there's, there's nothing in Joyce's notes or anything that says this. This is all detective work on the part of a particular scholar, but this hypothesis is based on the assumption that Molly got her musical skill from her father, because Molly's a professional singer, mm -hmm. so it would make sense if she had a musical family member, right? Um, because the position of drum major would require the ability to read music and to play a variety of brass instruments, mm -hmm. which you, you probably couldn't pull some random guy off the street and have him do that, right? Right. So on top of this, as we mentioned, Molly recalls going around on an officer's night, an officer's arm on band night, she says, and making all the, the sparrow farts jealous. Right. Right. We kind of mentioned that earlier. Uh, so Von Fohl says it was customary for the band leader's lady to be escorted by an officer during concerts. Mm -hmm. Right. So his, his wife or his lady friend, uh, the major didn't have one. Uh, Molly's mother was out of the picture, so Molly got to be the lady, and she got to play the lady on these evenings to the great envy of the aforementioned sparrow farts, mm. you know. So she was kind of a, you know, a low-position girl who got to be fancy on band night. Mm. Um, again, Molly referred to herself as a soldier's daughter in, in the same recollection, um, and she was recalling a time that would have occurred post Rourke's Drift, post-1879. Mm -hmm. This all sets up the possibility then that the members of the band might have just called him Major, because mm -hmm. he was a drum major, and they just started calling him Major Tweedy, mm -hmm. right. and the title stuck, and by the time he came back to Dublin, everyone knew him as Major Tweedy. No one ever bothered to question him or look into it, including his son-in-law, right. Leopold. Mm -hmm. To be continued in Lotus Eaters. <laughs> okay. Talk about the... Seven years time. Well, you know, I, I think we'll get to that sooner than you think. Okay. Um, also, listener, if you just want to know about it now, mm -hmm. just we, we have a, a, a blog post about all of this called Ground Control to Major Tweedy. Mm -hmm. And uh, you can just go read that right now. Um, unless you're driving, then wait till you're home. All right. Do you have any thoughts before we finish up here? No, I think the case is very strong. You think he's a liar? Like, uh, he's a big old liar. Bit of a, a fantasist, maybe. <laughs> a in, fantasist. The, in, a, in a good way. Like he's okay. not, yeah. he's not hurting anybody. It's true. I think he told a lot of tall tales, mm -hmm. and uh, Bloom is a bit credulous, at least in the face of the old major. Yeah. And he just liked him. He liked his stories. He liked he's larger than life. He had a cool father-in-law. Tweedy wouldn't have told anyone he was at Plevna. That's on Bloom. You wouldn't make you, that would be like an American soldier saying he fought in. New Zealand. It makes no sense. Yeah, it just, it but makes Molly no sense. remembers that too. Mm. So that that's what I, I think that 
Well, well, she just remembers him talking about it, right? She doesn't mm. say that he was there, there, just that they talked about it. We don't think he was in Khartoum either, just that he and this Captain talking Rose about talked it. about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah like, like Fallujah or something. Mm. Yeah, people talk about things that happened in other places. They didn't yeah. say they were actually there. Molly doesn't say he was at any of those places, in fairness. She mm. just remembers right. him talking about it. Right. Well, with that then, I think we should wrap this one up. Yep. Put it in the books. All right. Or just remember it by Mnemotechnic. Oh, Mnemotechnic. <laughs> oh, you're going to get to read a lot of fun words when we get to Ithaca. Oh, All kinds of words you never heard. And <sighs> I, the, the expression on your face is not happiness. <laughs> Don't put an M and an N together. Just spare That's, me. you got to blame the Greeks for that. <sighs> All right. So we'll leave it at that. Blame the Greeks. Yep. Good night, everybody. Good night. Thanks for listening to the Blooms and Barnacles podcast. Your support means the world to us. You can subscribe to Blooms and Barnacles on Apple Podcasts, Google Play Music, Stitcher, Spotify, or any other place you listen to podcasts. You can also stream our episodes at our website, bloomsandbarnacles.com. That's bloomsandbarnacles.com. If you've enjoyed our podcast, you can do one of three things to help support us. Number one, please donate at bloomsandbarnacles.com. The PayPal donate button is at the upper right-hand corner of the page. This helps us pay for coffee and for hosting fees. Two, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or the podcast app of your choice. This helps more people find our show. And three, share us with a friend who you think would enjoy Blooms and Barnacles. Blooms and Barnacles is also a blog. We post new articles and original artwork semi-regularly at bloomsandbarnacles.com. Never miss an update by following us on social media. Search for our group Blooms and Barnacles Podcast on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at BarnacleCast. You can also send us an email at bloomsandbarnacles at gmail.com. That's bloomsandbarnacles at gmail.com. We met some of our favorite podcast friends through random emails and social media DMs. We'd love to hear from you too, so don't be afraid to shoot us a message anytime. We'll be back in your feed in two weeks. Bye for now.